Welcome to the OSMA Talks podcast series, hosted by Oklahoma State Medical Association President, Dr. Larry Bookman, MD. Our privilege today to have the Secretary of Health for the state of Oklahoma, Jerome Lawfridge. Hi, Dr. Bookman. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a busy first week of the legislature. Um, I'm sure you've had nothing to, to do. Uh, but we want to start off by talking about the governor's new plan. Sure. Um, we have talked for years in this state about getting a, a federal money to expand our Medicaid population and to allow insurance coverage for them. Right. Now the governor's put out a, a plan, or at least a shell of a plan, without much detail. Right. Um, can you talk about that plan and, and what you see going forward? Sure. Happy to, uh, Dr. Bookman. Again, thanks for having me on. Uh, I appreciate the chance to get to describe this. Um, it is, in fact, the case that uh, really uh, at the tail end of his first year in office, the governor decided to tackle the big issue um, of health care coverage specifically for our most vulnerable. And so, as you would know, and probably as your audience would know, Medicaid was established uh, for exactly that purpose, to help the most vulnerable. But on the heels of the Affordable Care Act, there was a provision where that could expand upward. Uh, previously, the limit had been 100% of the federal poverty level as qualification for the Medicaid program. Um, but a few years back, uh, that was expanded under Affordable Care Act to go up to 138% of the federal poverty limit. And just for folks' sort of general uh, situational awareness, what that really translates into for a family of four would be income of about $3,000 a month, $36,000 a year. So it's that population that we're talking about, from 100% of poverty up to 138% of poverty, federal poverty limit. Well, Oklahoma had remained until recently uh, one of a handful of states who had not accepted that federal dollar had not expanded Medicaid. So the net effect of that was Oklahomans have been now for several years sending tax dollars to Washington. Those tax dollars have been going to states that have expanded and therefore we're underwriting the Medicaid expansion of folks uh, like those that live in Massachusetts and California. And so the governor looked at that fact that we've already sent the money to Washington, it's just we're not gaining any benefit from it. Uh, and then also the simple fact that there are not a lot of opportunities for us to bring into the state what will amount to as many as a billion dollars uh, for use on health care outcomes for our citizens. Um, the way that the governor and I have both thought about this is our major investor in this business of government that we run, the federal government, has told us what they want to see happen. And they've matched, they've put their money where their mouth is. They've said, we'll match you uh, our $9 to your every one if you'll invest in Medicaid expansion. So when we did all the math on that, looked at our outcomes, looked at where we sat, and looked at any other available option on how to address these needs, we didn't see a better opportunity than to take that federal expansion. Now, the governor offered an alternative to something that's out in the public domain right now, which is a ballot initiative that would also expand Medicaid, uh, specifically at state question 802. It'll come on a ballot sometime in this calendar year. Um, what 802 does is it also expands Medicaid, but it does it in a particular way. One, it is a straight expansion, meaning that it simply takes the provisions of the Affordable Care Act as they are, uh, with no flexibility, uh, no particularity to match Oklahoma's culture, uh, match Oklahoma's um, way of doing business. And it also puts it in the Constitution. Um, now, we have a, a, a view that 
likely as not, Medicaid will continue in the future uh, from the federal side. But what if it doesn't? And what if we have committed ourselves to covering uh, Medicaid and it's in our Constitution uh, and we have no alternative? Uh, that could have dire consequences for a state uh, that suffers from the cyclicality of, for instance, the oil and gas business. So we think that's a very hazardous way to approach public policy is by um, a state ballot initiative. And instead, the governor's offered this plan. So how does it differ from 802 in its particulars? Well, in a couple of important ways. Um, the Trump administration has recently, and by recently I mean last week, announced uh, a new innovation. Uh, the, the particulars of Medicaid are very complex, but from a high level, they've effectively said, uh, we're going to allow expansion dollars to take the form of uh, the Healthy Adults Opportunity Initiative. Um, which for shorthand we just refer to as a block grant. Um, the governor was actually on site with the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid right. at the announcement of this historic program um, as an exemplar of a state that intends to leverage uh, this innovative new approach. And what that allows us to do is a couple of things that are important differences uh, between the governor's plan and a straight uh, state expansion. Uh, among them are work requirements. Um, now, one misconception is that this population, the expansion population, again, those making from 100% to 138% of poverty, that those folks are not um, ever in a position to be working or contributing to society. That is a factually incorrect statement. But uh, the notion of underemployment or employment, for instance, taking care of uh, a loved one for which there's no compensation, uh, those characterize this population all the time. Uh, in fact, one of, the, one of the sad ironies is a lot of these folks will be actually involved in the healthcare industry, home healthcare workers and others, but will not themselves be covered by insurance. Um, so this is the group that we're talking about, but one of the flexibilities that the Healthy Adults Opportunity will afford Oklahoma is to put in um, what in shorthand have been referred to as work requirements, but really are just ways that we allow people to enter our system. Um, currently, we don't know uh, where people are that are in this, this bracket, 138% with respect to their work, with their opportunities, with their needs. And so what this allows us to do is yes, to uh, induce some folks who aren't working to enter the job market, but more than that, it allows us to see, uh, by virtue of their registration, okay, who does have a need, a training need, and how can we connect them with vocational technical training, uh, with uh, the completion of GED, with connection to our other state uh, social services. These are things for which we don't have a, an avenue right now, but that Medicaid expansion will allow us to do. So far from being some sort of punitive work environment, this is a portal into the services that we have to offer. Uh, and that we simply can't do if we take a straight uh, expansion. Uh, there are also implications for our rural hospitals. Uh, we know that we have a rural state and that the needs of the rural populations and their health care delivery differ from those of us in Oklahoma City or in Tulsa uh, or even Enid or Lawton uh, or Ardmore. Our really rural remote areas uh, are suffering and what we're going to be able to do through uh, some of the flexibility afforded by the Healthy Adults Opportunities Initiative is to move some dollars around and to create some structures that we simply have never been able to innovate around uh, and to try to do things like uh, incrementally increase some rates in uh, rural areas 
where we simply haven't had flexibility to do that before, to redefine what it is to be a rural hospital and to take away some of the strictures that have made it economically unfeasible. Uh, these are innovations the governor is really committed to undertaking, and now we have the flexibility to do that with this plan. So certainly uh, the main difference between State Question 802 and the governor's plan is flexibility, mm -hmm. being nimble. Is the legislature on board with this, or are they going to have their own plan that the people are going to have to decide between? Sure. Um, my sense is we'll have a pretty close coordination. I know the governor has been in um, very uh, close discussion with particularly the leadership, but not exclusively the leadership of both the House and the Senate. Um, I suspect in very near term we will see some movement uh, from one or both of the chambers uh, that will be supportive of this. I know that the leadership has come out appreciative of the governor's leadership on innovation, specifically and on crafting a plan for Oklahoma. So I believe we'll be pulling on the same oar uh, in that direction. Will there be some uh, specific policy differences? There always are. Um, but in the main, I believe we'll be, uh, we'll be moving in the same direction. I think that will probably happen swiftly. So with this plan, as I say, sort of being general without specifics, sure. uh, there's a lot of questions that come up. Uh, first, block grants, the ability to offer the healthy adult opportunity mm -hmm. is being debated in Washington. Sure. The Democrats have opposed the ability of the administration to provide this. What guarantees Oklahoma that if they don't vote for 802 that we're going to maximize federal dollars? Sure. Well, um, one thing I would say about the administration is they have come out strong, um, not, uh, not sort of floating the idea, but saying we're moving policy in this direction. Really the strongest, certainly for, from this administration, but probably uh, the most demonstrative and definitive statement since the Affordable Care Act around, uh, around Medicaid um, writ large. So I think we see this as policy period full stop. Will there per perhaps be challenges? This is, a, this is an often asked question about things like uh, work requirements. There certainly could be, and I think some folks have the erroneous assumption that, well, we've already tried work requirements. This gets a little bit particular and a little bit wonky, um, but the, those work requirements that have been challenged in federal court successfully mm -hmm. um, were challenged under a completely different waiver, uh, most specifically an 1115 waiver. Um, they were challenged under that under completely different assumptions. Uh, the entire architecture, policy architecture of this is a new form of 1115 waiver. That's what we'll be okay. submitting. And so uh, it's inaccurate to say, oh, that's already been tried. In fact, one of our state's uh, larger newspapers said uh, they did not support uh, illegal work requirements. Well, neither do we. We would not support them. You know, that would be manifestly a waste of Oklahoma's time and our, our resources. Uh, what, we, what we propose is what the administration has said um, under a new waiver, uh, they're confident we'll make it through. Will there be legal challenges? Probably, um, but you know, to live life avoiding legal challenge uh, would be uh, to, to sit in a hole forever. Uh, innovation is going to require some of that. We think there probably will be some challenges, but we think those are surmountable. So with this new 1115 waiver, the way it's written is there's either work requirements or they can participate in um, socioeconomic programs. Absolutely. Uh, who's going to determine whether they can work or whether the program that they're participating in fits the criteria? Sure, we're going we're gonna to use a lot of best practices and the fact that we, the, about the only benefit I can think of, Dr. Bookman, of our being late to the game is we can learn from the other 35 states who've already done this. 
So best practices exist on how it is that we, uh, that we determine where a person is. We know, with respect to outcomes, that social determinants of health are key. And one of the ways that we're going to vector into the social determinants uh, is, in fact, through these requirements. And that's why I'm hesitant to call them work requirements, because that is a component. Uh, but a, a manifest objective is to figure out what the need of this person living uh, just above the federal poverty line is. What do they actually need? Uh, is it transportation? Uh, is it further education? Is it childcare? What are the actual needs that go into their social determinants of health? Uh, and so again, we're going to be leaning on the experience of 35-ish other states who have already done this. We're not going to try to reinvent any wheels uh, in this respect, and I think the evidence is out there to, to help us. And we're going to get into the rural here in a little bit, but uh, the first thing is, is that there's also a participant fee, I'll call it. Sure. Um, and the governor has said that participants need to have skin in the game. Right. Uh, but we know that these people are living on the edge as it is financially. What do you see as the fee? Uh, what sure. range um, have you all looked at? Sure. Um, we're helped in a couple of respects. Uh, one, we're helped by a maximum. And so 5% of monthly income or annual income, 5% of income generally, is a federal limit. But we don't contemplate getting really near that. What we're talking about is something that has a couple of characteristics. One that is affordable. So think in terms of, uh, you know, as little as two dollars or five dollars or seven dollars a month, just to kind of scale that. But also know that it will be on a sliding scale according to income. And so the objective is manifestly not to make this inaccessible. Sure. Uh, that would that would countermand our entire objective. But we're talking about a few dollars a month, and it does a couple of things. One. Uh, market research in any of our segments of the economy show that when folks pay any nominal amount for something, they value it more. It's simply, you know, the for you and I, uh, we could prove that through uh, online music. Netflix yeah. is a beautiful example of that. We value what we pay for. Um, and it also conditions, our, our, our objective is for folks to come on to, especially in this expansion population, to come on to Medicaid for a season. Uh, and then to propel into a situation where they're on their own private insurance because they're working and progressing. Um, well, to develop uh, the muscle memory to pay a monthly premium, even modest, is something that you and I probably took for granted when we came out of college or you came out of your medical training. You were used to that. That was something that was in the warp and woof of your existence. Well, it might not be for this, folks. So might we help them? Uh, modest though it would be, might we help them to get into a sort of pattern of budgeting that would accommodate that? I think we do. Um, it's certainly something I'm trying to do with my 16-year-old right now, is to give a little bit of practice on paying something regularly. Uh, and I don't think that's in the least paternalistic. Uh, it's also not punitive. It's simply how we move folks. Uh, the governor likes to say, this is not a hammock, it's a trampoline. And one of those modes of, of, of propulsion uh, is to just get in these regular patterns that they're going to exercise the rest of their fruitful lives. We're looking at possibly 200,000 right. more people. Now we're talking about healthy adult opportunity. There's still the 200,000 approximately who are already on Medicaid, Right. may not have that ability to work. Right. Are we going to maintain the fee, basically fee for service that we currently have? for those people and children. Right, we're gonna start, we're gonna start with this expansion population. This is our test case. Uh, and so the rest of that population, and we know that for instance of our 
of our 800 to 800,000 to a million folks currently on Medicaid, depending on where we kind of point in time or over time with respect specifically to the pregnant women, uh, we know that two-thirds of that population is made up of preg pregnant women and children. Um, and so by and large, that's, that's not our objective. We're not going to try to, you know, retroactively do something like uh, the experimentation of, of work requirements there. We're going we're gonna to begin with this, uh, with this population and do our experimentation there. We think that makes the most sense. We also think that's where the most standing exists for us to sure. do that. Um, so, so look for the experimentation to be on these 180 to 200,000 folks who will be coming in. Again, largely able-bodied, uh, but look for us to accommodate those particular circumstances where they may be caring for an elder uh, you know, relative in the home, and that's a full-time and taxing job. Yeah. Um, so look for uh, accommodations that recognize that's where some people are, uh, but not give up that that's all they can be. And I think that's important for everybody to understand that we're going to have two groups, basically, sure. uh, where if you take state question 802, it all comes together right. as one. Um, I think that's an important distinction. One of the uh, issues, obviously, from the provider standpoint, sure. and that's who I represent, um, is how we're going to pay for all this. Right. Um, can you go into uh, what the governor's ideas about paying? And then, obviously, my follow-up question to that is, we're looking at a managed care. Mm -hmm. Who's going to manage the managed care? Right. And is it going to fall on the backs of the providers to pay for this? Right, right, good. Um, both questions are key, especially for your audience. I'm assuming that though millions may tune into this, it's probably more particular than that, and it may be folks who have a keen interest and maybe in the provider community. So I'm glad you asked the question because that's the nub of it is, okay, how are we going to pay for this? I think a couple of things front of mind are uh, existing structures. So we would love to be able to sort of rethink the entirety of how we fund healthcare given the time we have. Uh, and we're late to the game. There's no question. I think the governor recognizes that, again, 35 other states already having done this, the window in some respects closes uh, in, in terms of our getting on board and getting Medicaid. At least it does with respect to outcomes. We don't have any more time to waste. We know we're 47th in so many critical categories. Right. Uh, and it's, it's not time to dawdle. So the notion was, okay, what structures exist today that could be tweaked that could help pay for this? And one of them is shop. And so, um, you know, the ability to go up to 4% uh, of, uh, of the shop, and I won't, I won't try to do math out loud. But I'm, let me interrupt you there. Sure. You might explain to everybody what shop is. Okay, so shop is our hospitals, in very rough, very rough statement, uh, pay in and then receive out. And this is a tax specifically on um, hospitals, and it's not all hospitals, but it True. is particularly defined hospitals where they pay in and then receive uh, out uh, reimbursement from the shop program. Um, that has generally existed within the two point something range. Right. A statute says that it can go up to four, and so one of the notions, four percent, so one of the notions is that's an existing structure, hard fought uh, within the legislature. It's an existing structure where we wouldn't have to uh, recreate something but could simply flex up to already authorized uh, levels of four percent. So it seems that shop is one of those obvious ways uh, where we could more equitably um, come up with some meaningful dollars. And the other, frankly, is, is TSET. And the governor mentioned this. Uh, that's our Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust. 
uh, you know, using the proceeds differently from those trust dollars than we previously had in order to help fund Sooner Care 2.0. Uh, the governor made mention of that in the state of the state, and we're going right. to be looking very hard at that. Um, it's done good work, uh, TSET. Uh, it's grown, and so. At okay, how might we better use this, particularly when we have such a major initiative as Sooner Care 2.0? How might we bring those dollars to bear? So, those are a couple of ways that I would be thinking about or anticipating our funding uh, Sooner Care 2.0. Currently, the providers are uh, reimbursed at about 93% mm -hmm. of Medicare, mm -hmm. uh, and that's after uh, two years of increases, right? So, you know, we were much lower than that. You expect that number to drop or go up or stay the same because the providers the physicians are the basis of access to care oh, sure, sure. and to to drop that back where we were in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. um, is not going to be something that the physicians of this state are going to you know want right well um, and we've I think we've studied fairly carefully what's happening to our physician community what's happening coming out of residence, particularly on primary care, I mean, compensation for primary care physicians coming out is simply not what it was. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I doubt it was for you either. That's a, that's a significant issue, and when you compound that with our recruitment into Oklahoma, and most particularly in our rural areas, I think the last thing we can afford to do is to say, by the way, we're going to put this all on the back of the physicians. Correct. I think that's a that would be a losing proposition for us, and we're not in this to lose. And so uh, I think we intend to, to work differently around that than say, well, the obvious way to do is you just take less. Um, now, you mentioned a moment ago the notion of managed care, so I want to make sure that we, we take this up. Um, do we intend to innovate around uh, that idea? Uh, in other words, uh, managed care is sort of shorthand for a fully capitated system with this particular population. We do, and uh, and and why might we why might we want to do that? Um, the move to value, I think, is one of those uh, 21st century moves. Uh, fee for service, uh, the the system under which it existed. Um, generally I think could be characterized as 20th century and I think there's a general consensus around hey we have to do something different with respect to costs the notion is okay how do we how do we actually get there um, the governor's compelled that to have a capitated environment is the best solution for Oklahoma um, and it requires innovation it requires innovation from the hospitals it requires it from the physician groups we know that that's going to be a different move. We think it's the right one. And I think the key here, Dr. Bookman, is as we have talked with CMS at length about their views on how you do this well, as we've already begun to communicate with the other states, and Oklahoma, Oklahoma exists in a very small minority that does not currently have managed Medicaid, uh, including everyone at the top of the outcomes list. Now, we know access is only one small component of overall health outcomes, 15 percentage right points. Um, but we're, we're also behind on, I think, that move to value. So how do you do that well, and how do you do that in such a way as it protects and doesn't um, imperil our providers? Uh, we do that in the contract. And here, I think we feel 
more rather than less comfort given the backgrounds of some of the folks I think that are in the administration. Um, the healthcare authority, which heretofore has really administered the Medicaid program and will continue uh, to be the arbiter of all things Medicaid in Oklahoma, um, they are good at contracting. They have not developed, hadn't had reason to develop uh, in an environment of, of managed care. So we have gone out to try to source experts in that to help us. So our consultancy on board right now uh, expert in how we start to do that. We're not going to walk blindly into contracting because we believe that what's in the contract and how you enforce it is the key to having a successful managed care. Um, for those providers who have been around Oklahoma for 20 or 30 years, there was a failed experiment with managed care before. Um, it, it didn't work well. Uh, and I think the postmortem on that was it it wasn't attended to those those contract particulars what's in it how it's enforced what are uh, what are the mechanisms and what are the you know what are the costs to the provider whoever it is if they don't live up to their part of the bargain uh, you don't do that right you don't get good managed care I think we have proven that in the past if you do that right I think the potential for us to move to value uh, is really significant uh, and can most importantly uh, while protecting the providers move us in the outcomes direction for the health of Oklahoma that we aim to do. Certainly uh, managed care in the past has been inefficient. Mm -hmm. We all know that and the contract and what you're talking about is exactly what we need to see moving forward mm -hmm. um, and obviously the details as I said at the beginning the details are going to be the important point of this. Absolutely. Um, my last question is really just a little bit on access. You mentioned sure. access We've talked about in the past integrated health, having mental health as well as primary care all in one building. We've talked about uh, the ability of the FQHCs around the state, uh, transportation in the rural areas, broadband in the mm -hmm. rural areas, being able to get telemedicine. Is all of that being looked at? And I know that the government's going to come out with a rural health initiative. Mm -hmm. Um, are we looking at that and using that to expand our ability in rural medicine? We sure are, and let me, let me tell you particularly how we are. So I, I referenced a, uh, a couple of trips up to Washington, D.C. When the governor took hold of this notion, uh, really kind of back in the fall, and said, now we're going to train all of our firepower on this health care issue, um, he, he, he went full in. Uh, and so a couple of trips into Washington, D.C. culminated with his sitting down with the administrator of CMS, uh, Seema Verma. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a couple of points. We sat at her table uh, in her conference room, and the governor said two things. One, to the extent that there is forthcoming uh, something that looks like a block grant, which ultimately you know, eventuated in the, in the Healthy Adults Opportunities, we would like to be part of that. The other thing he said very specifically, and we were there and he he said this directly to the administrator, is um, we understand that there is coming a major grant program aimed at redefining rural health care. And he said, we want to be first. We want to be a laboratory for how this works. We have concepts, ideas. We certainly have the problems sufficient to do that. Sure. But we want to be first in line on how to do this. Um, and so not only have we imagined doing it, we've taken those initial steps to tell CMS, we want to be the, not, not fourth or fifth or sixth, they're among a group, we want to be first at the table. And some of the ideas that are uh, in that uh, involve 
our key outcomes. So you invoked mental and behavioral health. Um, it's critical everywhere. It's redlining in the rural areas. So how do we how do we approach that? Well, if we imagine leveraging federal dollars and we don't yet know, we're we're actually telling them we're ready before they have the the rules and regs out. We anticipate that coming in a month, six weeks. Uh, so we're going to be first in line uh, with an application for them. But if we imagined taking federal dollars, um, leveraging telemedicine, and here my colleague uh, Casey Shrum uh, up at uh, OSU and working on science and innovation in this cabinet uh, has done um, exceptional work around that. And we bring in digital transformation, uh, another area of our um, cabinet, the governor's cabinet, um, led by David Ostro. Um, if we bring those to bear on issues of broadband and access of telemedicine for rural areas, specifically around behavioral health, uh, what we've been told by our own providers is that will move the needle mm -hmm. with respect to these behavioral and mental health issues in the rural areas. Um, what a gift it would be if we could leverage that federal dollar and improve the outcomes in places like Warica, where they, they, there's no hope right now. There is not, there's not a path for uh, consistent high quality mental health services, but you can do that, as you know well. You can do that uh, telephonically, uh, through televideo. You can do that, it can have an impact on people's lives. Uh, the dollars invested are relatively modest compared to what we spend once a person uh, has spiraled down in mental health. All these things you as a provider know, we sense from the policy standpoint, and the opportunity right now is there are going to be federal dollars at play, and we're going to grab them. Um, and will we be greedy uh, in grabbing those federal dollars, maybe to the exclusion of other states? You bet. <laughs> we intend to be more than our fair share on that. And that's why the governor went up and said, we want to be in the, in the mix first. Well, this is obviously a fluid problem. Uh, you've heard a lot of details uh, beyond what the governor's uh, state of the state allowed us to hear and there's going to be more details coming forward in the future. I want to thank Secretary Lawfridge. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Dr. It's Berkman. It's been great. Um, we hope this answers some of the questions for some of the providers as well as the people of Oklahoma. Uh, we look forward to what's going to come in the future with more details uh, as we find out whether the state chooses state question 802 or whether it's able to choose a legislative slash governor's uh, program. Um, until next week, we thank you for listening and we'll see you then. Learn more at okmed.org and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Have a question for Dr. Bookman? Email him at osmatalks at okmed.org okay,